0: Hello and welcome to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. We're coming to you live from London. I'm James Menendez. In a moment, Chinese President Xi lays out his plans for the country. What does it mean for China and indeed the rest of the world? Also in the programme, we'll have the latest from Texas on another parcel bomb attack. And 23 Russian diplomats expelled by Britain head home today as part of an exchange between the UK and Russia. But at what point do both sides say enough is enough? My very esteemed predecessor, Brian Cartilage, said
1: you shouldn't get into a b- match with a skunk. And he's right.
0: More on that coming up in about 40 minutes time. But we are going to start today in China, where President Xi Jinping has brought the annual meeting of the National People's Congress to a close with a fervently nationalistic speech. He fired verbal warning shots to those agitating for independence for both Hong Kong and Taiwan and outlined his vision of China as a great global power in the making. Mr. Xi's power, though, is already set in stone. This was, of course, the same session that voted overwhelmingly to allow Mr. Xi to stay in post indefinitely. We're well, watching the speech for us, our China correspondent, John Sadworth.
2: As he walked to the podium for his closing address, every camera and every pair of eyes in the hall followed him. No leader in modern times has become both so powerful and so secure in that power. And now Xi Jinping was setting out his vision of what he intends to do with it.
3: Since modern times, the realisation of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation has become the greatest dream of the Chinese nation. The Chinese people are indomitable and will persevere. They have the courage for bloody fights against their enemies and they are determined to restore their former glory. Today, the Chinese people are more confident and more capable and closer than ever before of realising the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation.
2: Away from the whore, you don't have to look hard nowadays for evidence of China's rising power. The massive construction, the skyscrapers, the railways and the conspicuous wealth are all proof for President Xi that China is fulfilling its destiny.
4: For better, for worse,
0: China is entering a new era in which President Xi Jinping has become the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao Zedong.
2: Wang Shangwei is a former editor of the South China Morning Post. He's concerned about the heavy censorship deployed to stifle all public debate about the abolition of the presidential term limits at this parliament.
4: Failure to engage in such a sensible discussion
0: will not look good for China in the eyes of the international community. And I think China should do a much better job of explaining uh, this, whether China, like it or not, I mean, this is going to be an issue that will be widely watched and debated in the West.
2: At home, though, there is nothing but praise. This film, Amazing China, has become the country's highest earning documentary ever. Featuring breathy tributes to Communist Party rule, Mr Xi pops up regularly, tending to the poor or directing military parades. On the steps of one Beijing cinema, I ask people what they made of the film.
5: I'll watch again with my husband this weekend. It's very exciting and inspiring.
3: It motivates us to work harder for our society and the country.
2: But all's not what it seems. Many screenings have been bought out by state-owned companies, persuaded by the authorities to make block bookings for their staff. Did you have to come?
6: Um, You can say it's organised.
2: Despite the concerns about the re-emergence of a cult of personality, China is not the place it was under Chairman Mao. Kerry Brown, a professor of Chinese studies at the Lao China Institute at King's College London, who's been visiting Beijing during the Congress, says the increasing wealth may in itself act as a check on Mr Xi's power. The space of politics is smaller And I think that's why he looks bigger. I mean, because it's within very, very set boundaries. The fact is that he's going to need to keep a very, very pushy, expectant middle class happy. That they are not, you know, the sort of people who are going to be loyal to the party if they don't get. The things that they expect in their lives, I mean, he's their servant in the end. History, though, contains plenty of troubling parallels for a leader who puts himself above all public criticism. With the Congress over, Mr Xi was applauded as he left the stage.
0: BBC's John Sudworth in Beijing. So how has President Xi Jinping consolidated his power in the party? Uh, John joined us uh, on the line uh, from Beijing earlier.
2: Well, we know very little, of course, James, uh, about what happens behind closed doors. And the point of this Parliament is that uh, this is, is, if you like, Uh, sort of window dressing. Uh, This is the rubber stamping of decisions that have been taken long in advance behind closed doors at those very upper echelons of of power. Uh, One thing we can certainly point to, though, of course, is the anti-corruption campaign. Uh, It's been the hallmark of Xi Jinping's first term in office, and he has used it, undoubtedly, to silence rivals. Um, uh, More uh, senior officials, uh, more rank-and-file members taken down on charges of corruption uh, than, uh, than at any any time in recent history, uh, big beasts like Joe Yong Kang, Joe Yong Kang, the first uh, former member of the Politburo Standing Committee since the foundation. Of the country uh, to have gone down in a corruption campaign, and of course, you have to assume as a result of all this that if you are sitting on the stage with him uh, today listening to that uh, that closing address, you are there because of his gift. corruption was so deep, so ingrained, uh almost anybody could have been a target, and I think that uh uh, you know, that has been used to huge effect to, to swing the party in line, because, of course, um, you know, if you don't, um, well, uh, you've got plenty of examples of people who are now sitting uh, in luxury senior party jails um, for for for, uh, for their
0: disloyalty. Just thinking about uh, his uh, vision of China's place in the world and, uh, and looking close to home, the message to Hong Kong and Taiwan was, well, crystal clear, wasn't it?
2: Yes, it was. I mean, you know, these in some senses, we ought to say, of course, that these sorts of messages aren't new. All Chinese presidents talk about, um you know, ter- territorial integrity and, and the need to protect sovereignty. But given the context and given the fact that he is now. Uh, potentially, at least, leader for life, and uh, and the sort of cho- uh, choreographed display of loyalty around him. I think that those messages were so central to that. The fact that those messages were so central uh, is uh, significant. Uh, some people suggesting that perhaps we might see him uh, over the over this next term in office uh, move in some way to try to consolidate China's hold on Taiwan. Obviously, uh, this is all speculation, but I think a, a a real sense as he talks about national rejuvenation. Uh, that that priority uh, he said he would never give an inch of Chinese territory away and I think uh, there's a clear sense uh, that that is now a real key part of this very very nationalistic message
0: uh, and demanding a greater role for China on the world stage
2: well, I think you know really uh, that's the subtext to all of this. Uh, what we have at the moment is China looking around the world. It can see weakness in in Europe, political turmoil in in the U.S., and it senses a moment. And what China has done, what this Parliament has 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 rubber stamped through, if you like, is the idea uh, that uh, it, it is granting to Xi Jinping uh, the sole authority to drive this vision of of uh, of China reclaiming its place on the world stage. Uh, and a real sense, I think, that uh, it is uh, sort of uh, seizing its historic destiny uh, and that he is the man at the helm.
0: John Sudworth, well, that's some of the politics. What about uh, the economy? Diana Shalev is chief economist at Endo Economics. It's an independent macroeconomic consultancy in New York. Xi Jinping
7: has totally thrown out of the window, uh, Deng Xiaoping's ideas as to how China's economy should progress. We are really looking at China following its own path here. And to achieve the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation that uh, uh, you spoke in your previous report about, uh, they really must first go through a very challenging economic transformation at home.
0: And what does that involve?
7: Well, over the last 20 years, China progressed because it could grab export market share at tremendous rate. The global financial crisis put an end to that. So they need to transform their economy towards being driven by consumer spending. If we look at what has happened to growth, it has slowed down structurally dramatically since the crisis in comparison to before. And in order to create genuine consumers, you have to ask the legitimate question as to will this be possible if they are moving away from market forces, which is very much what they're doing in terms of, their capitalism with Chinese characteristics idea. However, having said that, they have made tremendous progress in the last couple of years in a rather unusual um, or unexpected way. They've opened up and tapped into the unspent um, consumer power in rural areas.
0: Um, how big though, uh, looking you know, ahead to the next few years, how big a challenge will it be to sustain the growth that we've seen and, and satisfy people's growing expectations?
7: It's a huge challenge. The only way for China to overcome its uh, current predicament is to boost productivity growth internally. And for them to do that, um, ultimately, the big question is, will they, if they continue to direct credit wherever they see fit, which is very much part of what they will continue to do, uh, and if they don't actually allow the free movement of capital in terms of allow outflows from China. But at the same time, there are still markets that don't exist and they could develop, which could remove inefficiencies in how their economy works and can give Uh, this this productivity growth. So what I'd argue is that this and next year will be very much the sort of make or break years for China. And if you'd ask me, I'll attach about 30% probability on the make, uh, and about uh, 70 on the break.
0: And and, okay, and and just a couple of sentences, then the trouble with centralizing control of the economy is that it, it's a danger for President Xi, because people can only blame him if things go wrong.
7: Yes, and um, the anti-corruption campaign, uh, of course, it can be very effective because it relies on fear. But if you overdo it, it's very difficult to pull it back. So one of the key things or themes over the course of this year, and uh, they're certainly gearing up for that, Mm. will be to use the anti-corruption campaign to rein in the financial sector and de-risk
0: that was Diana Shoyleva, Chief Economist at uh, Endo Econ- Economics, uh, on uh, what she thinks uh, president she is up to when it comes to the economy over the next uh, few years, her analysis there, uh, joining us from New York. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. Do stay with us. Still more to come. coming up in about 10 minutes' time, thousands of people have fled violence in Ethiopia. We'll be reporting from a refugee camp in neighbouring Kenya. Uh, Many say they're reluctant to return home.
8: We ran away because we are scared of the government. I don't want to go back there. I can't go back. We have left everything behind. My home, the cattle, the crops. I don't want to risk my children's lives.
0: More from Kenya Uh, after the news at half past. Our main headlines from the BBC newsroom this hour. Police in Texas are investigating whether another parcel bomb, the latest in a series of mysterious blasts, is the work of a serial bomber. An update on that coming up too. And French police are questioning the former president, Nicolas Sarkozy, in custody. over allegations that his election campaign a decade ago was funded by suitcases of cash from Libya. This is James Menendez with NewsHour Live from the BBC. Now, more than a dozen women have accused President Trump of sexual misconduct. One of them is taking her message, though, one step further by running for office. Rachel Crooks is running as a Democrat for the Ohio State Legislature. It could be a long shot in her rural Ohio district, which President Trump won by more than 20 points in 2016. No Democrat has held the position since 1994. But Ms Crooks hopes the recognition she's gained from her personal story, along with her platform of tackling income inequality and improving education, will be a winning formula. The BBC's Tara McKelvey has this report from Ohio.
9: So we have four cardboard postal service
6: boxes that are full of thank you cards for our donors. Rachel Crooks was at her house in Tiffin, Ohio, going through some boxes. She's running for the state legislature, and she says that she's received donations from more than a 1,000 people. They're coming from
9: all over the U.S., so it's really humbling to know that people are paying attention to
6: Ohio and to me in this race. People know about Rachel Crooks, and they've heard about her campaign because of a story she told about meeting Trump more than a decade ago in New York. She's one of the women who's come forward and accused him of sexual misconduct. I
9: worked in Trump Tower immediately after I graduated from college. She used to see Trump waiting for the elevator,
6: and one morning
9: she decided to introduce herself. That's when the infamous encounter happened. yeah, he just sort of held onto my hand and kissed my cheeks, but started to, you know, insert small talk and then just kept pulling me in and kissing my cheeks and then finally kissed me on the lips. So, it was really awful and upsetting.
2: You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. It
6: sounded like the kind of thing that he described in the Access Hollywood tape, the one that was leaked to the media during the presidential campaign.
5: This is Locker Room Talk.
6: During one of the debates, he said he wouldn't actually do something like that. And I was embarrassed by it. But I have tremendous respect for women. Have you ever done those things? have respect for me. And I will tell you, no, I have not. That's when she decided to speak out. Uh, Yeah, he called me a liar. Trump had said on Twitter uh, that the incident she described didn't actually happen. um, She fired back also also on Twitter. Here's what she
9: said. It's liars like you in politics that have made me want to run for office myself. In America, when women are called, we show up.
6: The election's not till November, but Rachel Crooks already has a campaign ad. Because the people in this part of Ohio deserve
9: better. They deserve a government that's focused on creating good-paying jobs,
6: not giving massive tax breaks to the wealthiest few. Trump won here by a big margin, and a lot of people are skeptical about her campaign. Paper and ink. David Kale owns a bookstore in downtown Tiffin. It looks a little musty inside, and on the morning that I was there, Someone called and asked if the new issue of Trains Magazine had come in.
5: It does concern me that she is apparently a candidate because of her alleged encounter with uh, the president before he was president.
6: Tiffin's a town that's rooted in the past, and Rachel Crooks is going up against an incumbent named Bill Reinecke. Reinecke and his family own several auto dealerships in the area.
5: Bill Reinecke has lived in this community for over 30 years. He's well-respected. Uh, He is a conservative Republican, and this is a conservative Republican district. Most of our offices are held by Republicans.
6: Jim Roberts is the head of the Republican Committee in Seneca County.
5: I don't care whether Donald Trump did or did not. grab. Shame on him if he did. Uh, Shame on her if he didn't. But that's immaterial to me. Uh, I want to know what she's going to do when she gets in the state legislature because we've had one heck of a good run with our state legislature that we have now.
6: But Democrats in Ohio are excited about her campaign. Gina Ganny's one of her supporters, and she met me at a restaurant in Tiffin. The amount of excitement for Rachel's
10: campaign is sometimes a little crazy. But I think there's these stories about these women all over the nation and that women are just standing up and saying things need to change and the way we've always done things is not working, so we need to
7: try something else.
9: I think Trump should be worried at the movement that his presidency has ignited.
6: Rachel Crooks says she knows she has a tough race. But she didn't decide to run just because of what Trump did to her.
9: It's more a disgust with politics that allowed Trump to be elected that has driven me to want to be part of it and make positive change.
0: That was Rachel Crooks sending that report from Ohio by the BBC's Tara McKelvey. Now let's uh, turn our attention to Texas because a parcel has exploded at a distribution warehouse, the latest in a series of unexplained bomb blasts. The BBC's Gary O'Donoghue is in Austin in Texas. He's been giving me uh, more detail.
4: Well, what we know is that there was an explosion at a FedEx distribution uh, plant in a place called Shirts, which is just north of San Antonio. And that's about an hour south of Austin, if you're looking Uh, the map. And this uh, explosion took place just after midnight or so. Uh, What we're hearing from the FBI is that this was packed, this bomb was packed with nails and shrapnel. It's not clear uh, whether anyone was uh, injured. Someone, one person may have been slightly injured, but we don't have any details on that at this stage. And of course... But the big question is whether or not it's connected to the other explosions that have been happening around the Austin area this month. Uh, and the FBI is certainly telling local media that they believe there could well be a connection, and that would make it the fifth bombing since the beginning of the month.
0: Uh, and tell us a bit, yes, tell us a bit more about those because they were much more harmful. I think two people
4: have have died, haven't they? Two people have already died. A number of people are seriously injured. the The first three attacks were. ...were parcels left outside specific people's homes. Uh, And the first two killed two black men... ...and the third one injured an elderly Hispanic woman. The the fourth attack, which took place on on Sunday, this past Sunday... ...was a different kind of attack. Though police say there were similarities with the device... ...and they're treating that as as being done by the same person or group of people. But that was a tripwire, effectively strung across the sidewalk... From a, a rucksack, uh, potentially to a fence on the sort of inside of the of the sidewalk, and two white men were walking along the street and they they tripped that that wire and caused the explosion and they 're still in hospital with serious injuries, although they are stable uh, so I think what the police are, are struggling with here is that there's this bomber or these bombers are changing their tactics from Target apparently targeting specific people to then a slightly more indiscriminate use of the the tripwire and then suddenly sending apparently sending something through the post itself this this explosion in the FedEx plant apparently the packages was destined for an address here in Austin so at this stage James the police don't appear to have a motive uh, and certainly as of yesterday last late last night they didn't have any suspects
0: Gary O'Donoghue in Texas. Uh, Still to come on the programme, questions for Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. That company's already been accused of uh, using personal data harvested from 50 million Facebook users to influence the 2016 US presidential election. Well, now Britain's Information Commissioner, Elizabeth Denham, uh, is seeking a warrant to get access to Cambridge Analytica's servers.
10: The allegations against Cambridge Analytica and Facebook concerning millions of users' data is one strand of a comprehensive investigation that the ICO is doing right now on the use of personal data for political purposes. What we've asked Cambridge Analytica for is access to their premises, their servers so that we can understand what data they may have held, whether that data was deleted and how it may have been used.
0: More on that coming up in about 20 minutes time here on News
8: Hello, I'm Carrie Gracie, and until recently I was the BBC's China editor. Well, I've got something really exciting to tell you. I'm now presenting the Real Story podcast. It's also made by the BBC World Service. We take a single topic in and around the news and we examine it in depth, one hour, one topic every week. The idea is to give important issues just that bit more space to breathe. So if you're looking for a slower look at our fast changing world, search for the Real Story wherever you find your podcasts.
0: Coming up next, uh, more on that uh, meeting shortly between Saudi Arabia's crown prince and President Trump in Washington. But first, thousands of Ethiopians have fled into neighbouring Kenya after at least 10 people were killed in recent violence. Aid agencies say a humanitarian crisis is looming in the border town of Moyale as more people arrive across the border. The Ethiopian government admitted that more than 40,000 have so far been displaced over the past week but says it is working to return people home. The, the country is currently under a uh, six-month state of emergency. That was imposed to quell months of anti-government protests. But as the BBC's Emmanuel Gunza has been finding out, many now living in the refugee camps are reluctant to return home.
3: Among those who've fled to Kenya is 20-year-old Guyo Jaso. I meet him at the local clinic that has been set up by the Kenya Red Cross and he has two visible gunshot wounds, one on his arm and one on his stomach. Can you tell me what happened? I was at the garage where I
2: work changing car tyres. It was the Ethiopian military who shot at me with two bullets.
3: Three of my colleagues were also shot. One died and two are still in hospital. Nearly 40,000 people have fled their homes in just over a week following the killings of 10 Ethiopians by government soldiers. 10,000 of those have crossed into Kenya. They lack basic services like clean water and enough food. Many of the children are not immunized. Dr. Bato Wagasha is the UN Refugee Agency's emergency response coordinator. This population is coming to an area which is challenged in terms of infrastructure, the health facilities, the water system and uh, the security to take care of the, such a large population. But more challenge is because of the, the demographic picture. Majority are women and children who need more protection, immediate assistance. They are pregnant women, and therefore the ability to provide the services to them is a priority we are addressing now. The Ethiopian government has admitted the killings were mistake by the military, which was conducting an operation against members of the outlawed Oromo Liberation Front, which is fighting the government. Ethiopia's ambassador to Kenya, Dina Mufti, says it's now safe for people to go back home. There
9: is no reason to fear and uh, because they have left their cattle behind, they have left their property behind, they have left their loved ones behind. The, most of these are children and uh, elderly and, and women and it's time for them to go back.
3: Back at the camps, the picture is much different. People are preparing themselves to begin life afresh far from their homes. I find 48-year-old Bukeguyo digging holes in the ground. This is where she says she will erect her house and live with the 12 children and grandchildren.
8: We ran away because we are scared of the government. I don't want to go back there. I can't go back. We have left everything behind. I don't want to risk my children's lives.
3: It's a sentiment that people keep repeating here. They don't believe the Ethiopian government's assurances and won't return. Kenya offers, at least for now, a peaceful future.
0: That was the BBC's Emmanuel Igunza reporting there from Kenya. You're listening to News Afro on the BBC. I'm James Menendez. The Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS as he's known, is meeting President Trump in Washington shortly following his visit to London earlier this month. That was accompanied by a public relations blitz promoting both MBS and his much-heralded reforms of his conservative kingdom. Well, in the US president, he has a close ally. President Trump's first overseas trip was to Riyadh. More on that relationship in a moment. But first, let's hear from the man himself. He's been talking to Nora O'Donnell of the CBS show 60 Minutes. First, here he is on corruption and human rights. Saudi Arabia believes in many of the principles of human rights. In fact,
1: we believe in the notion of human rights, but ultimately Saudi standards are not the same as American standards. I don't want to say that we don't have shortcomings. We certainly do.
0: But naturally, we are working to mend these shortcomings. And on the Saudi-led military campaign in Yemen and the humanitarian crisis it's provoked. It is truly very painful, and I hope that this militia
1: ceases using the humanitarian situation to their advantage in order to draw sympathy from the international community. They block humanitarian aid in order to create famine and a
0: humanitarian crisis. And finally, on Saudi Arabia's big regional rival, Iran. Iran is not a rival to Saudi Arabia. Iran is not a rival to
1: Saudi Arabia. Its army is not among the top five armies in the Muslim world. The Saudi economy is larger than the Iranian economy. Iran is far from being equal to Saudi Arabia.
6: Does Saudi Arabia need nuclear weapons to counter
5: Iran?
1: Saudi Arabia does not want to acquire any nuclear bomb. But without a doubt, if
0: Iran developed a nuclear bomb, we will follow
1: suit as soon as possible
0: how will some of those issues figure in the talks at the White House? Rob Malley is a former special assistant to President Obama. He was the lead senior White House negotiator for the nuclear agreement. He's now president of the International Crisis Group. What does he think Mohammed bin Salman wants from the Trump administration?
5: Well, in some ways, he already got much of what he desired to get. I mean, he's, he's had much greater support and proximity of views with this administration than in the preceding one. What he wants is as you just presented is to is to portray Saudi Arabia in a new light uh, make sure that the, that the alliance with the United States the military and political alliance is as strong as ever push back against Iran and uh, make some business deals but this is really a, a sort of a coming out another coming out for a, a the Crown Prince who is uh, who's asserted himself at home and now is trying to assert himself overseas. Uh, is he likely to
0: face any criticism in Washington for the the, the war in Yemen and Saudi Arabia's conduct of it?
5: Well, the story he wants to tell is a story about domestic reform and everything he's done, which he presented in his CBS interview. The story he'd rather not hear about is the one that he heard when he was in the UK uh, and which he will hear uh, in the United States, which is the humanitarian catastrophe that uh, that is uh, that is harming uh, that that is befallen on, on Yemen. And yes, one could blame the Houthis to some extent. I think that's fair. But obviously, the lion's share of the humanitarian uh, uh, disaster, as U.N. reports have documented, the the death of of civilians, the famine, the cholera, so much of it has to be laid at the doorstep of the the coalition, the Saudi-led coalition. And he will hear that because many members of the U.S. Senate, not just Democrats, but also Republicans, are increasingly worried and alarmed at the fact, not just that this war is going on and of its consequences but that the United States is uh, complicit in it.
0: Well, I suppose he would say, you know, that they didn't want that war. Uh, and indeed, they didn't start it.
5: Yes, he has said that. And I actually, I, I met with him last week and he makes, uh, he makes that case, all of which may be true, but from a different perspective, it's not particularly relevant. Yes, he may say that it wasn't started by him, it was started by the Houthi, that the Houthi benefit from Iranian support, that the Houthi, are uh, also uh, inflicting uh, harm on civilians, and that Iran is trying to expand its influence there. But none of that can excuse the way the war is being waged, uh, the way it is being waged on, uh, in terms of its humanitarian consequences, and, and the use of humanitarian means to, to conduct a war is something that obviously uh, sh- is prescribed. So he can try to shift blame to others. And as I said, there is no doubt that others should uh, uh, have have a share of, of that blame. So, should but the U- certainly-
0: so, so, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Should the US then be pressing uh, Saudi Arabia to try to to find a political solution and uh, and indeed helping with that process?
5: Absolutely. I mean, what the United States should do is first press them to take humanitarian steps to open the ports, to open the airport, to allow humanitarian goods to come in, but also to take a political initiative to really get back to the negotiating table and try to find a way out of a war, which is costing Saudi Arabia terribly and, and distracting from the reforms that Mohammed bin Salman wants to undertake, hurting its reputation overseas, and first and foremost, doing considerable, enormous harm to the Yemeni people.
0: Uh, just thinking about Iran and, of course, the, the nuclear uh, agreement, is the Trump administra- administration right to be bolstering Saudi Arabia's desire for, for regional uh, he- hegemony and, and, and siding so overtly with Saudi Arabia in that regional, regional tussle?
5: I mean, Saudi Arabia is a U.S. ally, but you know the question is whether the U.S. is simply going to enable it or is going to support it and try to press it into a wiser policies as allies should do. And again, I think there's a lot to look forward to and positively at in terms of what Saudi Arabia is doing domestically. But when you look at their scorecard regionally, whether it's Yemen, whether it's the crisis with Qatar, whether it was the attempt to force Prime Minister Hariri of Lebanon to resign, on all of those, I think a measure of U.S. pushback, advice counselling and restraint would have done much far better than the enabling that we've witnessed.
0: Robert Malley, president of the uh, International Crisis Group. Uh, Well, let's uh, return to what's happening in Yemen, because it is nearly three years since Saudi Arabia unleashed its offensive against those Houthi Rebels who driven out the internationally recognized government from the capital Sana'a. It is a campaign that's yielded few military victories but plenty of human misery. The BBC's chief international correspondent Lise Du said has travelled with Saudi and Yemeni government forces to Marib, east of Sana, and sent us this report.
10: It smells and sounds like a farming community here. You can hear the goats and the sheep, the chickens. But this is no ordinary community. It's a displaced camp. Here on this stretch of sand, families are establishing their temporary homes. Camps like this are spread right across Yemen. This is just a snapshot. More than three million have been forced to flee their homes in the years of war. And every day, more and more people are on the run. They come from all parts of Yemen, fleeing the fighting, fleeing the airstrikes, the rockets, the missiles, fleeing harassment. Everyone has a story. Like Musle Saleh's story, his family fled the fighting just east of the capital Sana'a and the blistering airstrikes by the Saudi-led coalition. He's landed here with his wife, seven children and a granddaughter. All they have now is each other. Tell us what happened that you had to come to live in this camp. When the bombing started in our village, Ma'rib was the only safe place. Everyone fled, no one is left there, and the houses were destroyed because of the strikes. People barely escaped, let alone managed to take their belongings with them. His three little girls still managed big smiles, but they survived a living nightmare. Musleh's wife tells me about seven-year-old Sunya's ordeal.
3: The war started when we were sleeping. This little girl would have died,
7: but I pulled her away because they were shooting towards her. We left everything we had, but our safety is more important. When we came to Ma'rib, we wanted to rent, but it was too expensive. So we made a tent until God solves this for us.
10: Yemenis here call Marib the safest city. The Yemeni army took it back from Houthi rebels more than a year ago. But the Houthis left behind a ground scattered with landmines, as I found out on a visit to the city's general hospital. There's a whole queue of men here in the waiting room. All of them have lost an arm, a leg. And here are the children, little boys all with such sad expressions on their faces, all of them so young and suffering the
3: effects of this war. My name is Dr. Muhammad al general director of this authority.
10: All these children are coming towards us. One, two, yeah. three, four, five. Okay. Oh, Shusar, what happened? Oh, mine. Oh, and you yeah. lost your arm. He lost oh. his
3: arm. He was thinking it's a toy.
10: Oh.
3: Uh, he opened it. Excluded, he lost his hand.
10: They all of them have lost the yeah, boy his... one, He lost his leg. Aww. How old <laughs> are you? This
2: is nine.
3: nine years.
10: Nine years old. And how old are you? <laughs>
3: 12 years. Uh, Eleven. 11. 14.
10: Do a lot of children come in affected by landmines? Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Because yeah.
10: Yes. for Boys. children, you have to keep changing the
3: limbs. Yeah, every four to six months. Because they are growing.
10: Are most of the injuries from landmines or Yeah,
3: and by rockets and missiles. But mostly by mines.
10: In one corner of the center the women are sitting together all in black with only their eyes showing. That is the custom here. What is your name, Ismik? Milha. Milha. Mm. how old are you, Milha? I wallah,
8: She
7: doesn't
3: know. You don't
10: know. She's walking with a crotch. What happened? Shusa.
3: She stepped on
6: a landmine and it got her leg. Did anyone
10: warn you that there were landmines here?
9: Nobody, no.
10: no. The Yemeni woman with me is 25-year-old Amita lah. She calls herself an independent activist. Most of all, she's fighting for a life worth living. Her mother died in childbirth. Her father and brother died of liver disease. In a country where healthcare has is all but collapsed. Like so much else here.
6: A lot of families, more than one uh, member of the families, they uh, lost their lives or anyone of their limbs. There is no family in this world haven't lost.
10: Everybody's lost somebody. Yes. Everyone. How do you see your future?
3: I don't know. I can't identify my future now because we don't know about this war, where it's going to end and uh, what's going to happen.
10: You don't see any end to the war? No, not really. And that's because all sides in this war aren't willing to give up the fight. No one is winning and Yemenis are losing, losing the little they had.
0: That was our chief international correspondent, Lise said reporting there from Yemen. Well, if you want to hear more about the conflict there and the possibilities for peace after. Those three years of fighting. Do listen out for this week's edition of The Real Story uh, with uh, Carrie Gracie. On Friday, Carrie and her panel of experts will be bringing some clarity to what's going on. there, explaining the fracturing of alliances that's happened in the past year uh, and made it such a complex conflict and discussing what opportunities there might be for the United Nations new envoy, Martin Griffiths. That's uh, Yemen on The Real Story this Friday here on the BBC World Service do stay with us here for this edition of news hour we've got uh, still more to come on the program we're going to be talking about uh, facebook and some of the pressure that the social media giant is coming under uh, right now uh, from investors as well as uh, from regulators too and we'll be taking a closer look at the expulsions of uh, russian diplomats from london Uh, where will it end that's uh, news hour still more to come in the next 10 minutes of the program don't go away A reminder of our main story today on News Air President Xi Jinping has set out a nationalist vision for China at the close of a parliamentary session that uh, cleared him to stay in power indefinitely. The BBC's John Sudworth in Beijing told us about the significance of today's speech.
2: What this parliament has rubber-stamped through, if you like, is the idea that it is granting to Xi Jinping uh, the sole authority to drive this vision of China reclaiming its place on the world stage uh, seizing its destiny and that he is the man at the helm
0: our main headlines Uh, also today police in texas investigating whether another parcel bomb the latest in a series of mysterious blasts is the work of a serial bomber and french police are questioning the former president nicolas Sarkozy in custody over allegations that his election campaign a decade ago was funded by suitcases of cash from libya This is James Menendez with NewsAir. Now, a committee of British MPs has asked face- the Facebook chief executive Mark Zuckerberg to appear before them to explain in person claims that millions of Facebook users' personal data was harvested for political campaigns. At the same time, Britain's Information Commissioner is to apply to court for a warrant to search the offices of the uh, political consulting firm Cambridge Analytica, uh, which is accused of using Facebook data to influence the uh, 2016 US presidential election. Well, with me in the studio are technology reporter uh, Zoe Kleiman. Zoe, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, he's not likely to appear in person, is he?
8: I don't think anyone could force him to but I think it might well be in his interest. I mean there's a lot of frustration at government level because they've summoned Facebook before to try and explain you know exactly what data is being collected, what happens to it, who it's shared with um, and the people that the, the government says the people from Facebook who have gone have not been able to answer these questions and there's been quite a robust response from uh, one of our MPs Damian Collins saying you know you can't send people who don't know you have to send people who do know what's going on and if that person is Mark Zuckerberg that's who has to come. So it'll be interesting to see whether he does decide to uh, to turn up.
0: Can you explain the, the the relationship between this firm, Cambridge Analytica, and? Facebook and and what exactly they did because it is quite complicated, isn't it?
8: It's a very complicated thing. they're alleged thing. to have done. Well, yes, it's all claimed, and we we should obviously say that that uh, neither Facebook nor Cambridge Analytica um, are accepting any wrongdoing. They say they've they've uh, that you know that nothing has gone wrong here. It's a bit of a story, so bear with me. Here's what happened. Um, there was a Cambridge University professor who created an app uh, which was like a game you could play on Facebook, and uh, the game was to, you know work out your personality type. This went on to Facebook in about 2014. About 270,000 people played it. What they didn't realise was that the act of playing it opened up all of their data to the creator of their app, but not only all of their data, the data of all of their friends. Now, this was quite common at the time. It was the way Facebook works. So there's nothing wrong with the fact that this data was widely available. What is then alleged is that the creator of this app sold it. To Cambridge Analytica and that Cambridge Analytica then really drilled down into it to build psychological profiles of some 50 million people, mainly in the US, and then use that information to target very specific messages at them in the run up to uh, the Donald Trump election. Um, things like, you know, let's say on your Facebook page, it becomes apparent by really looking at everything you write that you're very interested in education, say. So then your messages that you would see appear from the campaign are all about Trump's views on education and how much better education would be under him. So we're talking about, you know, psychological profiling, I suppose, at a very deep level. Lots of data analytics firms claim to put ads in front of people who want them. That's what they do. That's been going on for a long time. There's nothing wrong with that. But this is a sort of much deeper level, isn't it? It's going beyond where you live and how old you are and really sort of drilling down into your hopes and fears. Now, Cambridge Analytica was caught on film saying that it could do this kind of stuff. It now says it was hyperbole. It was trying to impress what it thought was a client but was actually an undercover reporter. Um, The truth is, is murky. We don't know.
0: Uh, and Facebook say, well, you know, at the time, those people who submitted to this should have known that that's how their data could be used because, you know, that was in the small print. It
8: is all in the T's and C's. I mean, I suppose the thing is the lack of transparency. Obama also used this um, this way of getting data, but, you know, in, in his re-election in 2012. However, the app that they launched on Facebook was called, you know, something like Let's Reelect Obama. It was very obvious what you were doing. The point is, if you're taking part in a personality quiz, you don't necessarily expect to end up, you know, in some way fueling a campaign for a police. Political candidate in the US. And that's the sort of murky lack of transparency.
0: This one's going to run and run. (laughs) Zoe, thank you very much indeed. That was our technology reporter, Zoe Kleiman there. Now, removal vans and minibuses have been leaving the Russian embassy here in London today as the 23 diplomats uh, suspected intelligence agents expelled by Britain head home. That was the response to the attempted murder of the former double agent Sergei Skripal and his daughter with a nerve agent. Russia responded in kind, expelling 23 British diplomats from Moscow but also closing the British Council and the consulate in St. Petersburg. Well, the British government's meeting today to discuss any further actions, but at what point do both sides say enough is enough? Tony Brenton was the UK's ambassador to Moscow from 2004 to 2008. First of all, is the number of expulsions in this exchange significant?
1: Yes, it is. I suspect it's more significant for the Russians than it is for us. I mean, it's tough... First of all, for the morale of an embassy. I ran an embassy to which something like this happened. And people get very depressed and worried about their future and all of that. And you have to handle that. And secondly, embassies do serious jobs in terms of maintaining commercial links with the opposite country. And especially at a time like this, when links are pretty thin between the UK and Russia, That sort of really quite important work is obviously affected if you've not got the people on site to do it.
0: And why do you think it'd be more damaging for the Russians?
1: Because our sanctions, I'm sure, have been targeted to eliminate all the intelligence agents in the Russian embassy. So one, in their eyes, really quite important function that their embassy performs, which is acting as a base for intelligence operations throughout the UK – has, I suspect, been quite crucially compromised by the action we've taken. And that's probably the single most important effect of the actions that we, we have taken.
0: Uh, when it happened to you, that was, of course, in the wake of the death of Alexander Litvinenko. And that was just four each, I think. I mean, this is, this is of a completely different order, isn't it?
1: That's right. And quite rightly. I mean, we chose the level at the time of the Litvinenko affair. We believed that the action that we took was going to be enough to deter the Russians from contemplating doing it again it's not quite clear that it didn't work. So the government's been absolutely right to step up the ante by a lot.
0: But Russia has, to some extent, upped the ante, hasn't it? Because it's not just the expulsions. They've closed the consulate and they've gone after the British Council in Moscow too. Does that require a response from Britain for those sort of extra bits? Well, it's quite a delicate decision now, of course. Yes, you're
1: right that they've gone beyond what we did, but not so far beyond as to make it look completely out of proportion. And the judgment that we have to make is, do we now retaliate, e.g. by closing down their consulate in Edinburgh, knowing that if we respond, then they will respond again. Uh, to a famous earlier occasion of one of these great exchanges, back in 1985, my very esteemed predecessor, Brian Cartledge, and I apologise to your listeners for the use of this language, said you shouldn't get into a match with a skunk. And he's right. What's happened has happened. I think, as I say, we have very badly damaged their intelligence capacity in the UK, which is the main target. And rather than getting into a continuing round of these things, I think we go from here. Well, what, what did he sorry, mean by
0: that? Did he mean don't take on someone who's always prepared to go further than you are?
1: Exactly. You reach the point where you've achieved your main objective, which, as I say, is to limit that intelligence capacity. Uh, in our case, there are other things happening anyway. Various sanctions against illicit Russian money floating around London are about to come into operation. So, in a sense, we are hitting the Russians outside of this exchange of expulsions in a way which will be at least as hurtful to them as the expulsions themselves.
0: And that was uh, Sir Tony Brenton, uh, the UK's ambassador to Moscow uh, for four years until 2008. Uh, that brings us to the end of this edition of Hour. from me and the rest of the team here in London. Thanks for being with us. I'll be back tomorrow. Until then, bye-bye.
8: NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.